All right, Alexander, let's talk about the situation in Ukraine on the ground in uh, this video. We could focus on a lot of different areas. There is Bakhmut, there's Marinka, there's uh, Belgorod. There's talk about a Ukrainian invasion into Belgorod. There's um, the Polish troops, the 200,000 Polish troops. By the way, I've, I was speaking to someone in Belarus and they told me, how they're looking at it, people that live in Belarus, how they're looking at the situation. There's uh, the the two drone, the, the one drone, sorry, the one drone, but the second time this has happened, where the drone was uh, in, uh, reached uh, the Engels Air Base in uh, the Saratov uh, region. And, um, and I think that covers most of it. The one interesting news that I just, I don't know if you saw it with Bakhmut, it's kind of the the reports that once again the Russian military is saying that that their main goal in Bakhmut is not so much uh, capturing the territory but eliminating the the Ukraine military. I mean, they've kind of clarified this. It seems for like a second or third time they keep on saying this is not really about you know taking the city. Though I'm sure that's going to happen, but it's more about you know continuing to demilitarize. And from what I understand. Uh, Belensky is uh, is sending a lot more uh, reinforce. That's what Biden. That's what Biden called him, by the way. Um, is sending a lot more reinforcements there. Over you know continues to just send more and more troops there. So it's a real terrible uh, situation in Bakhmut. Anyway, um, I just thought I would relay that information, which I read this morning about Bakhmut. So I don't know where do you want to start. A lot of a lot well, of activity uh, in all different regions. A lot of activity yeah. now. Now it's very difficult sometimes to piece all this together. But my my own impression is that over the last couple of days, Ukraine has been trying to launch some kind of a counterattack, not just in Bakhmut but in a number of other places. There was a report um, on Monday night that the Ukrainians had actually captured um, uh, a town called Kremenaya, which is in the north of the Donbass. It's um, pl a place which looked vulnerable after the Ukrainians captured Liman, and they were aiming to capture Kremenaya and Svatovo, which were these two towns, which were supposed to be important logistical hubs, and they've been bashing their head against the wall against these two places. And as I said, on Monday, there was a Ukrainian report that they'd captured it. It turns out that isn't true. And in fact, this morning, the Russians are claiming that they not only retain control of Kremenaya, but that they actually pushed the Ukrainians back. Now, last night, there were also Ukrainian claims. And I stress these are Ukrainian claims that they launched some major counterattacks close to Bakhmut itself and that they recaptured two uh, settlements near uh, Bakhmut, which the Russians had captured over the last few weeks, Yakovlivka and Kur Kurdominska. Now, if I'm getting the names wrong, I apologize. But that's what they've been saying, and that they've also gained some ground or regained some ground in a place called Opitnoye. Now, these are unconfirmed reports, and I understand again that they're being denied by, not so much by the official Russian military, but by reporters on the ground. But all of this taken together points to an, an, a Ukrainian counterattack. In other words, Zelensky is doing exactly what you said. He is rushing reinforcements to this area. He's trying to hold the line. 
He's telling the troops there to come on the attack. They're going on the attack. Um, they've made some ground, apparently, in Opitnoye. Kremenaya, they have not been able to recapture. It's possible they made more uh, advances in Bakhmut, but as I said, reports on the ground appear to be denying this. But one way or the other, what they are doing is they're throwing more troops. The Ukrainians are throwing more troops. Zelensky is throwing more troops into what now everybody is referring to as the Bakhmut meat grinder. Horrible expression. I loathe it. But everybody now is using it. And I can't help but think that this is playing exactly into the strategy that you described the Russians have, which is destroying the Ukrainian army steadily, methodically. Yesterday, a official, admittedly not from the actual Russian military, but I think he was from the Lugansk or Donetsk People's Republics, one of those places, said that Ukraine is now losing the equivalent of two battalions of people a day. Now, that's around 2,000, you know, between 1,600 and 2,000 men a day. Not all of those are killed. Some of them are severely wounded. But regardless of that, it is an extraordinarily high, unacceptable level of loss, you would have thought. But what Zelensky and his political leaders, apparently against the advice of some of the military chiefs in uh, Ukraine are doing, is that they're continuing to throw men and machines into trying to hold onto Bakhmut, trying to press on into Kremenaya. They're still talking about counteroffensives or launching offensives. They're still talking about an advance towards the Sea of Azov from Zaporozhye, even though there are now more and more reports, not just of heavy Ukrainian losses, but of Ukraine starting to run into manpower shortages for the first time in the war. And of course, the problem of them running out of equipment has been discussed and talked about many times, including in the Western media. So this seems to be the strategy. Whatever they're doing in Bakhmut and Kremenaya, and one suspects further south in Marinka and those places. It is not a good idea. I mean, the Ukrainian military, Zaluzhny, they seem to be concerned to try to preserve their reserves. But it seems that they're being frittered away in these kind of counterattacks. And I should say that even as the Ukrainians are carrying out these attacks in some of these places, one gets the news, the information that elsewhere the Russians are advancing. Apparently, they've made more progress in a place called Bakhmutskoye, which must not be confused with Bakhmut itself, but it's another settlement near um, Solidar, which is itself a suburb, a big, a small town close to Bakhmut. Some see it as a suburb of Bakhmut. And there's also problems. Uh, Ukrainians are also seeing uh, the Russians making more ground near a place called Avdivka, which is a sizable town of around 30,000 people before the war, close to Donetsk. And that's the major place where most of the Ukrainian troops are concentrated. So Ukraine trying to launch some kind of a counterattack, probably without much success, definitely losing more men and machines doing it. The Russians continuing their strategy of attrition against the Ukrainians. And one wonders how much longer this is going to go on for.
Uh, I've, I've heard reports, and once again, we can't confirm these reports, but uh, they sound, it sounds credible, logical, I guess, that uh, the Ukraine military is now having to abandon the possibility of some sort of uh, an offensive towards Melitopol and, and uh, eventually uh, cutting off the, the land bridge to Crimea, the, the whole Zaporozhye to Melitopol, that whole plan that was being talked about, say, even, even a month ago. They're saying that they're having to scrap that plan because they're moving many of the forces from the south up to uh, Bakhmut. I don't know if that's true or not. No. You may want to comment on that. But I also want to throw another rumor at you, which I don't believe, but I think it'll, it'll uh, give you some stuff to talk about, perhaps on a strategic level, on a geopolitical, let's say a political, a geopolitical strategic level, which is, and once again, these are, this is complete rumor. I don't believe this, but I think it's going to move the conversation along before we get to, say, Poland and Belarus. And that is that um, Zelensky is actually doing all of this. One of the driving forces for his insistence to continue to throw um, men into Bakhmut is that a defeat in Bakhmut, while damaging to Ukraine and the Ukraine military, devastating, to Ukraine, the Ukraine military, in Zelensky's mind, could could give him a reason to uh, to dismiss Zeluzhny and therefore removing a political threat, which is actually gaining a lot more attention in the eyes of the collective West. Uh, Zeluzhny being the the obvious um, replacement successor to to an erratic panicky um, Alensky. What, what, what do you make of that? I don't take it especially seriously. And of course, we've had these rumors, these stories about Zelensky and Zeluzhny being at odds with each other. Um, we have to be careful because, of course, a lot of this could be deliberate disinformation, which is being spread by not just the Russians, but by people within Ukraine themselves who might have all kinds of agendas that we can't really fully understand. So let's be careful about this. But I'm going to say this. It would not surprise me <laughs> if it were true. I'm not saying it is true, but it would not surprise me if it was true. I don't believe that Zelensky is deliberately engineering a massive defeat for the Ukrainian military in Bakhmut in order to get rid of Zelensky. I mean, I think, I, you know, I, I, I the, think the, that... The, 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 I just want to clarify, the theory is not that he's engineering it. The theory yeah. is that... Yeah. Um, and once again, we don't... This is just for the conversation, because I think it can move along the, 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 the analysis. The theory is that if the defeat were to come, Yes. You know, he's, he's yes. pouring everything he has in there. So in his mind, even even with a defeat, he removes an opponent. That's right. That's exactly correct. I mean, I, 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 I get the point. So, I mean, the idea is if he wins, it's good for him because he took the decision to make the, you know, stand and fight in Bakhmut. It's the 300 Spartans and Thermopylae and all that. And that, you know gives him enormous credos and whatever kudos. If he loses, well, it's a defeat, a disaster, but at the same time, he's able to get rid of Zeluzhny, and that solves the problem. So from his point of view, he wins either way. Well, I, I, I get that. And as I said, I, I, Ukraine 
is a complicated place, just to put it mildly. And I would not be surprised if within Zelensky's entourage, there are indeed people who are thinking in that way. And I should say that it, it's, there are clear signs in Kiev of continuous factional struggle. I mean, the, the intelligence chief, who I probably got his name wrong, but he, he's something like Bogdanov, but I may be wrong about that. He's now done a huge program. Vodanov, yes, he's done a huge, there's been a huge program in which, you know, he talks about, you know, how Ukraine's going to win, how the Russians are losing, you know, running out of weapons again, and how he's able to move around the city, uh, uh, and he does so without bodyguards and things of that kind, all clearly intended, so far as I can see, to give the impression that, you know, he's, um, um, you know, a person close to the people, <laughs> I think he's positioning himself in a political, trying to seek some kind of political push. Because when people do that, that, you know, when intelligence chiefs of all people, you would expect them to hide into the shadows when they come out and so uh, behave in such a prominent way. It, it, that suggests to me that there is some kind of factional infighting and political struggle going on. So I think that there is political in fighting going on. And of course, as the war goes increasingly badly wrong, that's going to get worse. It's going to get much worse. But it is important to say we don't know exactly what's going on under the surface in Kiev. All we can say definitely is that there are things going on under the surface in Kiev, that there are these political intrigues. But it's important to focus on what we know. What we know is that there is this battle in Bakhmut, and for reasons that Zelensky has and you know the Ukrainian leadership has instead of pulling their troops out which is what from a humanitarian and ultimately perhaps a military point of view would make sense they are instead sending them in they're feeding their troops into Bakhmut into all of these places they're going on the attack all the time despite the fact that, as I said, it makes little rational military or political sense. Now, can I just, before we get on to Melitopol and all that, there's been a very interesting article by um, a U.S., a retired U.S. Uh, military officer, Lieutenant Colonel Alex Vashinin. He's a very, very powerful analyst um, who writes about, you know, the Ukraine war and has been doing so in a very interesting way. He takes the view that one of the major reasons why Ukraine carries on these offensives, even though they are completely misconceived, and he's the first Western analyst to say that the Kherson offensive, for example, far from being a success for Ukraine, has actually weakened Ukraine. It's thrown away large numbers of men and machines to no real strategic purpose. Anyway, what Vashinin says is that it, they have to do it in order, firstly, to sustain morale in Ukraine itself, at least amongst the people who continue to support the Maidan movement, and, of course, also to keep the Western sponsors happy. And I think that is probably the overriding reason. But what's going on between Zeluzhny and Zelensky, whether, you know, Zeluzhny's on his way out or Zelensky's on his way out or there's going to be a major falling out between the two or what is going to happen, that we'll just have to wait and see. That there is tension between the two, 
That is indisputable. And if you go back to that interview with The Economist that Zelensky and Zeluzhny gave a few weeks, about a week ago, two weeks ago, it actually says that, that there is tension between the two men and that Western military officials are worried about it. So it's clearly going on, but we don't have the full story. Anyway, let's get on to the other topic, which is Melitopol. Now, again, in that interview with The Economist, Zeluzhny appeared to rule it out. He said, I've only got two brigades. That's nowhere near enough. I need much larger, more powerful forces. I need more armor. I need more artillery. I need more infantry fighting vehicles. I need air cover for my troops. We know that there's a very large number of Russian troops in the area. They don't have the supply issues that they'd had in Kherson region, and they have a very complex layered defense lines that they've been fortifications that they've apparently been building up there. And there was, again, a piece about this. Well, it was about many other things, but on in the Financial Times, they were also saying that, you know, this advance on uh, Melitopol really isn't practical. And one gets the sense that for the moment it's been abandoned. The emphasis instead is on trying to cling on to Bakhmut, trying to cling on to the Donbass, feeding troops into this um, um, meat grinder and losing them in huge numbers. Yeah, there are telegram channels, Ukrainian telegram channels, that are openly stating that the decisions, the decisions made uh, with regards to Bakhmut are, are nothing to do with military decisions anymore. It's moved completely into the political realm. These are yeah, Ukrainian yeah. channels that are saying this is yes. completely political now. And I, I was going to ask you about uh, Budanov, the, uh, the intel guy, his, his interview, the intel chief, and his interview, because that was, that was what's... Uh, what what seemed to be developing was a lot of a lot of officials in and around uh, uh, Zelensky are are starting to to creep up and it looks like they're trying to to put themselves in a position to be the uh, the rightful successor to uh, to Zelensky. So a lot of palace intrigue going on. So uh, Zeluzhny did talk about uh, Melitopol, but he also talked about Kiev. And uh, the possibility of the Russians uh, moving from Belarus to Kiev, we have the uh, the the story, which I, I think is now fully confirmed that uh, Poland is uh, is training um, a force of around two hundred thousand uh, troops to uh, to do what? Who knows? But uh, from what I understand from various sources in Belarus, these uh, these are people with zero military experience. Uh, most of them are people with zero military experience. A lot, a lot of them have administrative experience, um, legal, um, lawyers. Uh, there's, there's people who have medical experience. And, um, and this has led me to believe that perhaps this, uh, this initiative from Poland may have something to do with not not only securing Lviv and the western part of Ukraine but it seems like they're they're training people with they're training people to 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 put in place if and when they actually do this who can administer the uh the 
let's call it the new territory, the, the annexed territory, if this were to happen, and we don't know that's what's going to happen, but it seems like this is not only just about, you know, training people to, to, to fight, but it seems like they're, they're, they're recruiting people to, to secure and administer uh, an, yes. a, an area. That's, that's what it looks like, but I don't know. Anyway, um, that's what Zaluzhny was talking about with uh, Belarus and Kiev. I don't think that's going to happen, but that's what he said. And, yeah. and then we have the yeah. the other last possible offensive that um, is being talked about from uh, the Ukraine military's uh, viewpoint, and that is into Russia itself, into Belgorod itself, which is something that that is getting a lot of uh, momentum and a lot of traction. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let, let's just deal, first of all, with this Polish build-up. Now, it's interesting you've been told that by people in Belarus, because I've heard exactly the same thing from people in London, that some of these people are soldiers, some of them are not. But this is a very complicated... Okay. And we didn't, we didn't coordinate. <laughs> exactly. so we, didn't know, we didn't coordinate. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Because, I mean, yeah. uh, um, uh, so this is... this this. Once, I mean, you know, one must be careful because, of course, what we are corroborating with each other may be corroborating what is actually wrong. But I think this is probably right. Now, one of the things that I have found very interesting is that in the last three weeks or so, there's been a major, uh, uh, it's not been picked up by other people, but there's been a major shift in the way in which the Russians have been talking about Western Ukraine. Now, Back in the spring, Putin seemed to signal that if the Poles want to enter Western Ukraine, the Russians will act um, very, uh, they'll be very hostile. There'll be a lightning strike. And you remember he used that phrase and it seemed to be directed against the Poles. Over the last couple of weeks, he's been making lots of speeches, going lots on, on the media. He's been talking about lots of things that's been going on in you know the war and he said some very interesting things firstly he he quoted uh, a member of the tsarist duma this is you know before the first world war who apparently warned the tsar and said so publicly if you want to lose ukraine join galicia to it in other words western ukraine and putin said this is prescient that this is, you know, this is a major mistake that was made then. He also talked about the fact that, I mean, he's clearly shocked by the antipathy towards Russia of Western Ukrainians. And he said that Western Ukrainians were intimidating what Putin says is the silent majority of Ukrainians. And he's also spoken about the fact that Western Ukraine was taken from Poland by Stalin, as if implying that this was something that this area belongs to Poland. Now, Russian commentaries have been full of stories that the Poles are intending to annex Western Ukraine. And in fact, They've even given a date. They say that the Poles are planning to move around May, that they're going to be sending their troops into Western Ukraine in approximately May. I'm wondering whether, I don't think there's any communications between Poland and Russia, between Warsaw and Moscow, but whether the Russians aren't signaling 
to the Poles, look, if you want to go into Western Ukraine, if you want to go into this area, <laughs> you're welcome to it. We're washing our hands with it. It's irreconcilable. They are passionately against us. Go there. You'll probably find that it's not the easy and comfortable place that you think it is. But that's your problem. We're not going to interfere. So that's that's the kind of sense that I'm getting from the Russian side. So it could be, and again, we you know we're speculating a little, but we're speculating on the basis of facts. What we're hearing about the mobilization and the fact that there are civilian elements alongside military ones. What the Russians are now saying. It could be that the idea is that both Moscow and Warsaw have come to some kind of tacit understanding. Ukraine collapses, Poland moves into Western Ukraine, tries to annex the territory, Russia doesn't object, the Poles are then left trying to absorb Western Ukraine. Probably the Russians are saying to themselves, this is going to blow up in the Poles' faces. The Poles, however, uh, people like Yaroslav Kuczynski are obsessed with righting the wrongs of 1939 and 1940 and, you know, bringing all this ancestral Polish land as they see it back into the Polish state. I, I personally think it's going to create, cause them no end of trouble, but you know that's that's probably the Russians are saying to themselves that's their problem, and the Russians perhaps are saying to themselves, better uh, Western Ukraine reabsorbed into Poland than either a Western Ukraine which we're trying to control ourselves, which would be enormously complicated for us, tie down our troops, our security people, and all that sort of thing, and perhaps better that than an independent Western Ukraine, which might spend all its time trying to agitate and sabotage and create problems for us in Ukraine, the rest of Ukraine, once we've reabsorbed it. So, you know, that's the kind of sense I'm getting. And, I, I you know, I'm not saying this is how things are going to work out, even if the Poles and the Russians today have come to that tacit understanding. You know, May is a long time off. It could be the things change. But I'm beginning to wonder whether this is what's going on. If it does, by the way, it will be very interesting to see how the Western powers react. I suspect some of them will not be happy. The Germans will not be happy. The French will not be happy. What the Americans will make of it, I'm not even prepared to guess, and what the Ukrainians may give it to, that I'm not prepared to guess. But anyway, I wonder whether that isn't where we're going. Yeah, I have to say that when um, I look at a map of, of the situation and I say, okay, so if Poland takes Lviv, uh, there's the argument, and when you look at a map, there's the argument that, well, if, if Poland does move into Western Ukraine, well, then NATO moves closer to Russia, yeah. and so it's not a win for Russia. But when you look at a map, it really, it really doesn't make much of a difference, to be quite honest, whether this Lviv area goes to Poland or not. I, I don't think it changes the balance of power at all with regards to NATO moving closer to, to Russia. It really doesn't. As a matter of fact, I think it actually, um, it it's actually puts puts NATO or Poland in in a worse position strategically because the further in to Ukraine they go without reaching Kiev, the further in they go, 
They have Belarus, which now has a, a very tight union with Russia, right on top of them. If you assume that Russia gets uh, gets all the way to Transnistria, they have Transnistria to to the south, and they have. And if you are to assume that Russia moves further east, and they have Russia to to the further west, and they have Russia to the east of them, so it actually puts it would actually put Poland and NATO militarily, strategically, in not such an advantageous position because they would be surrounded on three three sides in a way. And plus, I think that the Russian if this is true, we're not saying this is true, if this is no. true or if this does happen, mm. I would imagine that um, you could assume that this would be the first domino to fall and perhaps Hungary and Romania would then jump in and say, well, you know, if that's the case with, with Lviv, well, then, you know, we've got, we've got certain uh, claims or certain people or, or ethnic Hungarians and Romanians who, you know, it's time to, to come home. I mean... It could be the domino that leads to a chain reaction as well. And once again, this is we're not saying this is what's going to happen or what could happen. My point in all of this is that from a security standpoint with regards to NATO, for Russia, it's really not such a, such a big deal if, uh, if the west of Ukraine goes, goes into the west. I, I, I think you're almost certainly right. I mean, I'm not as a military person, but I, I that, it, that makes total you, sense. You look to at me. a map. I, yeah. I, you only have to look at a map, as you correctly say. Just to add, my own strong view about this is that if Poland marches into Western Ukraine, it's marching into a trap. As you said, they're surrounded on three sides by, in effect, the Russians and the Belarusians. Not a good idea. They're going to be taking over territory, which, to be frank, is worth very little. I mean, you know, this is a poor area. <laughs> I mean, it's become Lviv has become a sort of wealthy place, but it's become a wealthy place because, well, it's been so strongly, you know, supported by the Western powers and other parts of Ukraine because it is the focus of anti-Russian feeling in Ukraine. If it becomes a provincial city within Poland, that incentive goes. And again, I think it's an economic burden on Poland rather than an asset to Poland. And of course, last but not least, it's important to remember that Polish as a Ukrainian nationalism in this part of Ukraine has historically been as antagonistic to Poland as it was to uh, Russia. Um, Bandera, who is the you know the great hero of these of the Ukrainians in this part of the world, was extremely anti-Polish. I mean, at least as anti-Polish as he was anti-Russian. And you know, I I wonder whether this makes much sense from a Polish point of view, but. They do seem to be fixated on it. This is very much uh, um, apparently a, a personal, a private obsession of Yaroslav Kuczynski, who is the leader of the Law and Justice Party. He's only the deputy prime minister, but most people accept that he's the key policymaker. I suspect that this is what the Poles, some people in Poland are planning to do. Now, can I repeat again? I strongly think France and Germany will not be pleased with this. Even people like Robert Habeck and Annalena Baerbock, they will not be pleased to see Poland becoming bigger in this way uh, and getting itself drawn into Ukrainian complications, which might in turn 
draw in Germany and France. So I think the other risk Polish Poland runs is that already it's on bad terms with part of the EU core, Germany and France. And I think it may find that by marching into Western Ukraine, it's going to make those relations worse still. And of course, it runs also the risk that if it finds itself facing a lot of opposition over time in Western Ukraine, then of course, that's going to create a situation where instability is now imported into Poland from Ukraine. So anyway, we'll see how this all plays out. It's a complicated business. We we don't we we can't look too far ahead. But I you know I I can see how things could turn out far from well for Poland. I'm going to just add one other little point about this. Of course if the Poles take over this region of um Ukraine, Western Ukraine, as you could rightly say, Romania, Hungary might step in. There might be tensions with the Hungarians and the Romanians. There might be arguments about who should control which territory. There's another factor which perhaps Germans, the Poles might want to think about, which is, of course, that one of the reasons that Poland's borders after the Second World War were shifted westward, with Poland taking over extensive territories which before 1939 had been German or had been part of the German state. There's a long history with some of these places, which I'm not going to go into, and I know the Poles have long-standing claims to some of these places, but places like Wrocław, Szczecin, Gdansk, once upon a time, they were seen as German places. Breslau, Stettin, Danzig. Well, you know, Poland was compensated, as the Allied powers saw saw it, for the loss of their poor eastern lands with these wealthy German lands. Of course, if they end up taking everything, having both the poor eastern lands, I can I can see. You remember, there is now a rise of some national feeling in Germany. We're starting to see it with the IFD. Now, I could see over time some people in Germany saying, well, hold on a moment. The Poles have got back what they lost in 1939, but they're holding on to our historic lands because despite that, they're, 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 in other words, they're having their cake and eat it. And I could see, possibly, just conceivably, that one day this might cause trouble, more trouble between Germany and Poland as well. Personally, if I was advising the government in Warsaw, I would say to them very firmly, stay out of Ukraine. Yeah, they're they're already too too deep into it. Yeah, they're already too deep into it at this point in time. Oh well, I, I agree. I, I agree, it? but yeah. Well, I think the other problem right yes. into the middle of this conflict. Yeah. Well, absolutely. This is entirely true. And I think the trouble... Indeed. Well, indeed. And I think the other problem is, I mean, you know, Kuczynski, Kuczynski in particular seems every bit as antagonistic to the Germans as he is to the Russians. So these arguments are not going to cut any ice to him. with him. He probably feels that Poland should have it all. And, you know, perhaps it should. But all I am saying is, I think that reopening all of these issues... 
may not play well for Poland in the long term. I'm just saying that as somebody, and I want to stress this, who has very warm feelings and a high regard for Poland. I mean, I have lo- I, I, I've, never, I've, I, I've had long connections and friendships with many people from Poland, and I care about the country. And I think this is a dangerous course that the Poles are heading into. But I agree. I think that the present Polish leadership seems determined to commit Poland in that direction. Let's turn to this last offensive that Ukraine might launch against Belgorod. I think that'd be an and, and also And also stupid. comment, and also to wrap up the video, yeah. Alexander, comment also, as you go into this offensive into Russia, comment also on the uh, drone in uh, Saratov. That's right, absolutely. Well. The Saratov, the Saratov the drone. Okay, well, let's deal with that first, because I think it's a smaller issue. Now, uh, when we did our previous program, after the previous drone strike on the airbase in Saratov Engels, this giant airbase, um, I, I said that this wasn't a good look for the Russians. The optics were extremely bad. And that I did wonder, you know, what was the great vaunted Russian air defense system doing? Well, somebody who I want to stress is not Russian. He's from one of the Western countries. I don't want to give more details, but a person with colossal qualifications and expertise in this area, he got in touch with me and he said, look, I understand the points you're making, but you have got to understand the technical constraints. Trying to patrol every area and millimeter of airspace and this, we're talking about a huge airspace, would require having constant air, um, airborne early warning aircraft flying. It's not practical. It's not efficient. And the air defences in Engels seem to be working pretty well. So even though these cruise missiles apparently fly, and I'm assuming it was the same kind of cruise missile, you know, converted drones, old Soviet-era drones, divert converted into jet cruise missiles um you know they, they they managed to fly apparently quite close to the ground they're able to penetrate deep rather than spend your time chasing them using up resources in that way resources which you might be better advised using in other ways and it is a it is the case, for example, that Russia does have airborne uh, um, early warning aircraft, but they're apparently being used increasingly to coordinate and monitor the effects of the Russian missile strikes on Ukraine and to track the movements of uh, Ukrainian air defense missiles, rather than divert these very important early warning aircraft from that mission. It's better to just leave it to the air defences at Engels, which seem to have the situation under control, than to divert your precious resources to doing that sort of thing. So, yes, Ukraine does launch these long-range missiles. Some of them get very close to Engels. In fact, they all do. Um, So far, every drone that's been launched at Engels has been shot down. Debris, unfortunately, does fall. On this occasion, apparently, some people, three people were killed. But that is war. I mean, you have to accept that. It's better to approach it in that way than, as I said, to chase around, divert your early warning aircraft, of which Russia has a number, but not, you know, on the scale that the U.S. does. 
uh, and yeah, they're pretty good. Apparently, they're more advanced than the uh, American AWACS aircraft. But you know, there's a finite number of them. Better do it that way than divert your resources in that way. And the that that does, of course, also lead to the speculation whether. The purpose of these drone attacks, which everybody in Russia assumes have been coordinated with the U.S., I mean, you know, that the purpose of this is to do two things. One is to divert the airborne warning aircraft, the the the, the, the Russian AWACS aircraft, the A-50s, uh, from their proper mission, and the second is to get Russian air defenses, you know, in this whole area, reading all the way up to Saratov, to get them to switch on in ways that will help identify them for the Americans and for NATO. So it's better, despite the bad optics, to just let these cruise missiles get close reasonably close to to, to angles, and then the very powerful air defenses at that air base just leave them to shoot to shoot these uh, um, these these cruise missiles, these drones down. Now, that's an explanation. It seems to me as good an explanation as you're going to get. As I said, it's provided by someone who has knowledge and understanding of these things and a degree of technical expertise, which I don't possess. And it seems to me logical. It seems to me to explain the position. So. The Russians have consistently shown throughout this conflict that they are embarrassment proof, that, you know, Ukraine can launch these kind of pinprick attacks, but that the Russians always ride with the punch. They will not be diverted from their main aim. And with Engels' air defenses working, probably they feel, well, that's what they should continue to do. So that's that's all I'm going to say about this. I mean, I don't know whether you have anything to add there, but that that's that's an explanation I've been provided, and it's the only and it's the explanation I'm going to run with. I mean, I don't know better. If anybody out there, you know, who is also particularly well informed about these things, wants to contact us and question this and challenge this, I mean, they're absolutely welcome. But this is. And this is not my area of knowledge, obviously. Um, And as I said, I'm grateful for this information and this advice. And as I said, it seems to me plausible and I'm going to run with it. Yeah, the the only thing I would add is that over time, the the collective West NATO, they're going to see that Russia is not taking the bait. And so eventually they're going to say it's not working. This plan is not working. It it does deliver a little uh, media and PR win for... Yeah, for Ukraine to a certain extent, but that's all. That also fades over time. You know, people just start to not to not care so much about this. So, uh, but let's uh, finish it off with Belgorod, though. Absolutely. Well, Belgorod is is is. I think this is a big story actually because I happen to believe that's something that the Ukrainians might very well do. I mean, it would be uh, an incredibly reckless and dangerous thing for them to do. I am told that if they try to move troops into Belgorod, into Belgorod region, um, they those troops very easily risk being encircled and surrounded. There's, you know, we're moving ever 
deeper into Russia, closer to Russian supply lines. Russia, of course, obviously dominates this airspace. The logistics work very well for the Russians in this area. And as I said, from a Russian point of view, it's almost a trap, if you like. Again, you draw the Ukrainians into doing something like this. It's highlights the danger that Ukraine poses to Russia and all of that. So from a military point of view, this makes no sense. But from a political PR perspective, and so much of what Ukraine is doing seems to be driven by that, I personally think that this is a very strong temptation. I think this is something the the Ukrainian leadership, Zelensky and his people might very well be tempted to do. If things are starting to go very badly wrong in Donbass, which every hour, every minute, they seem to. I mean, I, I, I haven't followed it, but I've been getting a whole lot, load of information. I'm sure you've been getting it as well, uh, even as we're making this video, which suggests the situation in Donbass is, you know, deteriorating for Ukraine again. If the crisis in Donbass becomes very real, if it really does look as if Ukraine is facing a disaster, a military disaster, its its army is almost exhausted, it's out of weapons, it's all sorts of things like this. And um, there's an accumulation now of information that the actual effective army Ukraine is left with is about 200,000 men, not more than that. Well, in that case, I can very well imagine Zelensky and co going for broke, saying to themselves, you know, we've got to do something big. We've got to do something exciting. We've got to do something that will capture the imagination of the world that's going to send the media in the West spinning, (laughs) that's going to have, you know, big editorials about how, you know, we've thrown the Russians onto the defensive, Um, something that might also create an political earthquake in Russia itself caused the fall of the government in Moscow, all of that sort of thing. So strike at Belgorod. (laughs) And um, apparently there is a significant Ukrainian force there. I mean, there's about, you know, 20,000 troops as an assault force. There's others as well, apparently in Kharkov. So there are the means to do it. So as I said, it would make no military sense. It would be a, a logical disaster logically a disaster. I could see them doing it. I could see them doing it as a sort of desperate last throw, uh, uh, a last gamble before the end. Um, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the uh, German Ardenne, Ardennes offensive of December 1944 and how Ukraine has been doing lots of things like that. It seems to me this would be that the equivalent of that if it were ever to be done. But, you know, the Germans did it in December 1944. Perhaps the uh, Ukrainians will do it this time. And as I said, you know, for a couple of weeks, Russians will have, again, a lot of difficult headlines. There'll be criticism of Putin in Moscow, all of that sort of thing. But from a military point of view, it would probably play out to Russia's advantage. Just as, by the way, and there's a gradual consensus in beginning to sort of build that the same was true of Ukraine's Kherson offensive, that Ukraine suffered massive losses to to retake Kherson city. The Russians pulled out in good order. And in fact, the Ukrainians 
not only achieved nothing, but in the end it weakened them. Belgorod would be far worse for them than that, but it's the sort of thing they might do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Belgorod would be in, invading Russia proper. I, I, I know Kherson is now part of Russia. I understand that, but yeah. this is this is you know Russia, Russia, right, right up there yeah, in the north. Absolutely. So absolutely. I, I can definitely see the desire to create that type of headline from uh, from the collective yeah. West. I mean, that would be a juicy headline. You know, we've absolutely. we've invaded Russia now. That's how well this is going for us that we're invading Russia. I mean, that's. That's hard for for Zelensky and the scriptwriters in D.C. and London to resist. I agree. Uh, This seems to me, uh, this seems to me a very powerful reason why Ukraine might do it. Because, to be frank, the entire Ukrainian war effort has been based around this. It's all about public relations, imagery, optics, that kind of thing. That's why they're striking at angles. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of military rationales behind it. You know, all the uh, pinprick attacks they've launched on Crimea, all of the, but it's all ultimately about optics. And how can they resist this biggest optics win of all? I can't really see it. I can't really see them resisting right. it. I think they will do it. At some point, I think they will do it. Yeah. Well, the retaliation would be... Uh, overwhelming. Know, would be pretty, yeah. pretty severe. Overwhelming, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. We'll leave it there. The Duran.locals.com. We are also on Rockfin as well. The Duran shop, 10% off. Use the code GOODDAY. Take care.